Last time we spoke about the drive towards Salamaua. New Guinea was about to see a large-scale offensive launched at Salamaua, but in order for it to be pulled off, the Allied High Command decided to produce many feints to distract the Japanese. Codenamed Operation Postern, General Blamey directed his subordinates to launch offensives around Salamaua, but not to attack it directly. Battles began to break out over the Pimple, Green Hill, Observation Hill, and Bobdeby Ridge. It was costly warfare for both sides, but the strategy was working as the Japanese were beginning to believe the Allies were targeting Salamawa, rather than the actual target which was Lei. We also talked about the tragic tale of the fate of the surviving Doolittle POWs and the sinking of the hospital ship Centaur. The Japanese would perform many more war crimes during this war. But today we are venturing back to the frigid North Pacific. This episode is the Battle of Attu. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all of that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just now releasing my episode on the Hunga Twin Incident. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. This month's exclusive podcast episode is the second part on my series about General Ishiwara Kanji, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident, and the man who created the theory of the final war. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. It is May of 1943. Almost a year has passed since the Battle of Midway. The Battle of Midway, though, as you have heard me say probably a hundred times by now, was not exactly the turning point of the Pacific War. Nonetheless, it has captivated people ever since. There is something to be said about Midway. It just makes for a great story. It's full of everything. Deception, foreshadowing, an underdog victory. It's on the level of Herodotus, to be brutally honest with you. But while that's all good and fun, it really overshadows other events in the Pacific War. One thing that gets really overshadowed is the Aleutian Islands campaign, which ironically was born from the Battle of Midway itself. As we have seen throughout this series, the Japanese invasion of the islands of Attu and Kiska were incredibly important aspects of the war. Hell, it was the first time American territory has been seized since the War of 1812, a war in which my nation of Canada defeated America. <laughs> Jokes aside, trust me, I know quite a lot about the War of 1812, and by no means is it that simple. And it's honestly one of the most misunderstood wars in history. The invasions of Attu and Kiska were a large shock for the American public and their liberation was demanded from the very offset, as you can imagine. Now, just to backtrack a bit, only a tiny bit, for coherency's sake. Last time we talked about Admiral Kincaid's plan to attack Kiska. The plan became a major item debated at the Casablanca Conference. The Allied commanders liked the plan, and they sent it over to the Joint Chiefs of Staff to try and hammer out the details to form it into a real operation, and it got a codename, 
Operation Land Crab. When it was presented to General John D. Witt, he recommended using the 35th Infantry Division, but the War Department decided to use the 7th Motorized Division instead. They had been, of course, trained for desert warfare in North Africa, but General Rommel had just been defeated, and thus the division's expertise in that area was, well, no longer needed. Vice Admiral Francis Rockwell received overall command of Operation Landcrab, and when he looked over the plan, he quickly pointed out some major problems. Number one, they simply did not have enough naval assets to pull it off. Getting back to the drawing board, Kincaid suggested they switch their target for Attu, believing the island only held a garrison of around 500 Japanese. Attu would turn out to have closer to 3,000 men. Regardless, Kincaid argued bypassing Kiska for Attu might result in the Japanese simply abandoning Kiska. The idea was approved, and the 10,000-strong 7th Division commanded by Major General Albert Brown would receive a crash course in amphibious landings and tundra warfare. The initial plans were set for May the 7th, but the finer details of the plan were only finalized on April the 1st at the San Diego Military Conference. As mentioned before, shipping was the most crippling issue facing the North Pacific, as they really only received the hand-me-downs, so to say. This Operation Landcrab would be forced to use five terribly overcrowded transports, the Harris, Haywood, Zylan, Perida, and Kane, escorted by Task Force 51's destroyers Dewey, Dale, Monaghan, Alwyn, Minelayers Sicard, Pruitt, and Minesweeper Group Perry, Elliott, Chandler, and Long. They were to depart on April the 24th. Now to preserve secrecy for the operation, the 7th Division, who were training in California, were told they were going to be deploying in the Solomon Islands. Kind of a nasty surprise when you think about it. You're training for a tropical climate only to be shipped off to one of the coldest and most miserable places in the world. A key element in the plan consisted of the Provisional Scout Battalion, commanded by Captain William Wallaby. This unit was made up of the physically toughest men of the 7th Division, and it would prove to be the finest American fighting forces on Attu. Captain Wallaby would have 410 men, who were given very little time to train. Wallaby secured massive firepower for his men, getting rid of half of their rifles and all of their submachine guns and replacing them with automatic rifles, machine guns, and exchanging their soft lead ammunition for armor-piercing rounds, which was a big necessity so they didn't ricochet off the ice. He also made sure to fill his men's packs to the brim with grenades. The men left San Francisco on April the 24th at 1 p.m., completely ignorant of their true destination. In the meantime, the Americans wanted to keep their actual target a mystery from the Japanese, and began a bombardment campaign against Kiska and Attu, tossing most of the bombs at Kiska. The bombardment campaign was heavily hampered by tremendous storms for the first half of April seeing winds up to 150 miles per hour and gusts over 127. The Americans managed to batter Kiska with 1,175 sorties during April's second half. Then on May the 1st, they suddenly switched focus to Attu, where their bombers hammered it with over 200,000 pounds of their bombs. The pilots unfortunately were bombing blind as Attu was covered in a thick fog. Thus, there was no way to know how effective their campaign truly was. Of the entire invasion force, only Willoughby's provisional scout battalion would get training ashore in the Aleutians prior to the deployment, while the rest of the 7th Division came ashore at Cold Bay, where they would be forced to stay aboard their ships as there was no accommodations ashore, a shivering, crammed mess to be sure. Only Captain Willoughby's men would carry on over to Dutch Harbor, where they would embark on a week's last-minute training session in snow and muskig.
While the 7th Division boys were shivering their asses off in Cold Bay, General Butler signaled the bombardment campaign to lay down the hammer on Attu, tossing Admiral McMorris's force into the mix. McMorris led the light cruisers Richmond, Detroit, and Santa Fe, also destroyers Cognon, Bancroft, Cadwell, Edwards, Fraser, and Gasfort, to bombard Attu with naval gunfire. Over on Attu, Colonel Yamazaki Yasuo had been appointed to command the 2nd District Force of the North Sea's garrison that had just arrived to the island in April. He was given orders to hold Attu without any additional help until at least May. In May, he was to receive reinforcements. Until then, he had the 83rd and 103rd Infantry Battalions, the Aota Battalion, which was a provisional anti-aircraft battalion, the 302nd Independent Engineer Company, the 2nd Company of the 6th Ship Engineer Regiment, and the 6th Independent Mountain Artillery Company. In all, it was 2,630 men, with just a few coastal guns, some flat guns, and small arms to defend themselves. Yamazaki decided to keep the garrison at Chichagov Harbor, while at Holtz and Massacre Valleys, he had the men abandon the low ground to instead dig pits, trenches, and bunkers on the high, rugged ground overlooking the valleys. Rockwell and Brown spent May the 1st and 2nd discussing the landing plans against Attu. Characteristically, the Aleutian weather was to be bleak, furious storms raged, thus postponing the operation. D-Day had to be pushed from May the 7th to the 11th. Rockwell called for landing the entire 7th Division at Sarana Bay, as he didn't believe he could maintain full-scale supply of two different landing points. However, Brown favored making three landings, one at Halts Bay, by Colonel Frank Cullen's Northern Force, the 1st Battalion of the 17th Regiment, another in Massacre Bay by Colonel Edward Earle's Southern Force consisting of the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the 17th Regiment, and the 2nd Battalion of the 32nd Regiment, and Captain Willoughby's Scout Battalion was to land at Beach Scarlet. Lastly, a reserve force consisting of the 1st and 3rd Battalions of the 32nd Regiment and the 1st Battalion of the 4th Regiment were ready to depart at any moment from Attack. The key to the plan was to have all three forces join up in the mountain pass called Jarmin Pass, which lay between Halts and Massacre Valleys. Converging there would basically trap the Japanese at Chikagov Valley, leaving them open to naval bombardments and aerial bombing as the 7th Divisions advanced upon the high ground. Willoughby's scouts would have an extremely dangerous task having to land from two large submarines at night, the USS Narwhal and Nautilus. It would have to creep up in complete silence to achieve the element of surprise. This was easier said than done. When jumping into their rubber boats, their equipment would clank and some of their heavy weapons would rip holes in the fragile boats. Thus Willoughby instead planned to come topside, inflate the rubber boats on the afterdecks of the submarines, and try to quietly get on the boats while they were still high and dry. The submarines would then submerge under them, so the boats would simply float without a ripple. Pretty smart stuff, and very innovative for the day. Once a beachhead was established, the destroyer USS Kane would bring the remaining 165 men to Attu. Admiral Kincaid's Task Force 16 would provide the naval support, consisting of two groups, the southern covering force of Admiral McMorris, consisting of light cruisers Richmond, Detroit, and Santa Fe, the destroyers Coughlin, Bancroft, Caldwell, Fraser, and Gansfort, and the northern covering force of Admiral Giffen, consisting of heavy cruisers Louisville, San Francisco, Wichita, and destroyers Balk, Hughes, Morris, and Mustin. They would have the task of naval bombarding the enemy positions and would receive the support from Admiral Rockwell's Task Force 51, consisting of the escort carrier, Nassau, three old battleships, the Nevada, Yano, 
the Pennsylvania, and the destroyers Edwards, Meade, Ammon, Phelps, Hull, McDonough, Alwyn, Monaghan, and the transport group covered by three destroyers Dale, Dewey, and Farragut, and a minesweeper group and two minesweepers Chandler and Long. And I do apologize for having to read out these long lists of ships. Though, might I add, I've received two comments now um, from people demanding that I read the list of every single ship and that I go into finer details about certain ships. I would imagine they are fellow World of Warships players. This was to be the largest American naval force assembled since the invasion of Guadalcanal, and their guns would hammer the enemy on out too to support the ground forces. On the 3rd of May, the assault force finally departed Cold Bay en route for Attu, despite the fact their intelligence indicated the Japanese knew that they were coming. The convoy cut across the chain of Amutka Pass, making a wider circle north of Kiska to avoid detection. By the 6th, they had reached their launch point, 100 miles north of Attu, but a storm began to smash them during the evening. The surf became too dangerous for landings, forcing Rockwell to postpone yet again. Rockwell took his transports and had them perform circles while his battleships headed west in case the Japanese tried to send reinforcements from the Kurils. By the 11th, the storm had ended, leaving a soupy fog over the ocean. Because of the fog, the destroyer USS McDonough accidentally cut across the destroyer USS Sickard's course, causing a collision. No one was injured, but the collision breached McDonough's hull, forcing Sickard to tow her back to Haddock. Sickard was one of the control ships for the landings, thus the landings would now be even more difficult. Meanwhile, Colonel Yamazaki received warnings of the incoming American invasion by May the 4th, and he set to work ordering his men into combat alert positions. He kept the men on edge for a week, but by the 10th he had exhausted them, and it looked like perhaps the weather had stopped the invasion from coming at all. Thus, Yamazaki decided to leave the beaches unguarded, as his small force could not possibly guard every inch of them anyways. His force was made up of what is called the B-team, the older men and the raw recruits, primarily drawn from Hokkaido. The only advantage that they enjoyed was the fact they were from Hokkaido, thus they were used to colder climates and knew the terrain and weather a bit better than the Americans. Giving up the beaches to occupy the high ground was the only sensible defensive posture Yamazaki could have hoped for. Thus, a major component of the defensive strategy would be to draw the enemy further in towards the mountains and away from their supplies at the shore. Yamazaki organized his forces into two sectors, the Chikagov Harbor sector and the Holtz Bay sector. Lieutenant Colonel Yonagawa Isamu defended the Holtz Bay sector with his Yonagawa force of 420 men, 526 men of the Aota Provisional Anti-Aircraft Battalion led by Major Oota Seiji, 270 men of the 6th Independent Mountain Artillery led by Captain Ono Chinozo, 270 men of the 6th Ship Engineers led by Captain Kobayashi, and 183 men of the Field Hospital Unit. The Chikagov Harbor Sector was defended by Major Watanabe Tokuji, who had 664 men of the 303rd Independent Infantry Battalion. Willoughby and his scouts moved ashore first at 1 a.m. on May the 11th, making the start of a struggle that would carry on for 19 days. It was not going to be a three days adventure like Admiral Kincaid had promised them all. Willoughby and 244 of his scouts clambered out of the large submarines Narwhal and Nautilus into their inflatable boats and made their way three miles to the western shore of Attu. They successfully landed at Beach Scarlet after two hours and immediately headed for the icy little creek that climbed up the ravine towards some ridges. There was no sign of the Japanese anywhere. 
Disasters struck immediately when some naval wildcats swept low over Scarlet Bay and began strafing their boats, narrowly missing three guards left behind with the boats. The wildcats had come from the U.S.'s Nassau, sent there to support them, not to destroy their escape vehicles. The friendly fire was certainly a bad omen to start their mission. With 36 hours worth of rations in their packs and no ability to retreat, the scouts made their way climbing a snow-covered mountain ridge. Willoughby and his soldiers spent the first night at the bitterly cold summit. A B-24 would be sent to drop additional ammunition and rations to them, but the powerful snow-filled winds hurled the parachute supply crates deep into some crevices. They were never recovered. Over in the south, the old battleships delivered a bombardment at Chicagoff Harbor. After this, the largest of the three assault bodies had arrived aboard their transports to Massacre Bay in the early morning. Imagine being told you had to make an amphibious landing at a place called Massacre Bay. That's on this. However, the fog was so intense, the Allied aircraft couldn't see a glimpse of the ground from their altitude of 20,000 feet. In fact, both the Japanese and Allied bombers would be spending the majority of this battle grounded because of the weather. The Americans had yet again had to postpone, this time until the afternoon. General Brown had had enough, and he ordered the southern force of Colonel Edward Earle to make the landings regardless of the weather. At 3.30, the first wave began to hit the massacre beach unopposed. An hour later, the second wave landed at 5 p.m. The soldiers came ashore to an eerily silent beach, greeted, allegedly, by a solitary raven whose croaking echoed eerily off the foggy ridges until the bird flew away. Now that is scary. And rather ironically, as I read that just now, one of my parrots just woke up and started screaming because it's 7.05 in the morning, which is what they do every single day. So if you've ever heard a very loud screech in the background of one of these podcasts and wondered if you're going crazy, no, it's, uh, it's one of my parrots. Yeah. Meanwhile, the northern force led by Colonel Frank Killen landed at Beach Red, meeting no immediate Japanese resistance as they formed their beachhead. Beach Red proved to be a narrow strip only a hundred yards long or so, surrounded by 250 feet heights. It was a highly unlikely landing area, and thus the Japanese had never set up defenses there. Instead, the Japanese had set up positions intending to hit the Allies at Moor Ridge, using two 75mm mountain guns. By mid-afternoon, Kulin had 1,500 men ashore, and climbing with no sign of the enemy. During this period, however, Cullen succumbed to hypothermia, forcing Lieutenant Colonel Albert Hartle to take command. Hartle began his command by tossing out a screen of the Aleut scouts, some who had originally come from Attu, over the ravines and mountain ridges they went. By 6 p.m., a U.S. patrol encountered four Japanese. They killed one man, wounded and captured another, but the two others managed to escape and raise the alarm. The Japanese began digging in on the high ground overlooking Holtz Valley. The day's deep silence unnerved the men more than the outpouring of gunfire. Lieutenant H.D. Long described the eerie silence followed by a sparrow that, quote, He sat on a bump above the beach, and he sung his lungs out, and an explosive gasp shushed out the hundreds of our throats. The spell was broken. The world hadn't died around us. The first DSC from Attu should go to that bird. He saved lives that day. His song changed us from a tight, tense, hypnotized, unrelated group of human beings to a relaxed, laughing, cohesive fighting force. 
Boy, this episode has a lot of birds. Back over Massacre Valley, Colonel Earl decided to toss one battalion up the valley floor and another up a parallel ridge. The two-pronged maneuver was slow going because of the muck of snow, mud and muskeg. They would soon come upon a chain of Japanese machine gun nests and motor positions held by the men of the 303rd Infantry Battalion. They were led by Lieutenant Goto at Hona, who told the men to wait silently for the enemy. Their position lay in some thick fog. They could see the Americans clearly below them, struggling forward up the valley through wet layers of snow and sucking mud. They had orders from the Northern Imperial Army Headquarters at Paramashiro. Destroy the enemy. We pray and hope for your successful battle. However, the first shots of the battle would be fired at around 6 p.m. by Brigadier General Archibald Arnold's three 105mm field artillery pieces. The pieces of artillery had been brought up ashore with the southern force, but immediately they got stuck in the mud. A scouting force led by Lieutenant James West had found a Japanese motor position and called its location down to the artillerymen at the beach. Their first shell missed, but the Japanese motor crew walked right into the next two shells which destroyed their guns and blasted the crews to pieces. They were to be the first casualties of the Battle of Attu. While those shells were being lobbed at the ridge lines, Japanese snipers opened fire taking long-range shots at U.S. troops struggling up the valley throughout the day. By 7 p.m., Earl led hundreds of men forward in an attack on the pass at Massacre Valley's inland end, soon to be dubbed Jarmin Pass. Japanese machine gun fire and motor explosions caught the Americans on open ground. The men fell back, rallied, tried again, and were driven back once more. The Japanese had prepared their battlefield expertly, choosing defensive positions that provided cover and concealment. Their snipers were very well positioned at right angles to cover the approaches from the enemy upon their machine gun nests. The grenade launchers covered depressions where the Americans might take cover. A system of tunnels and trenches allowed them quick and easy movements. Telephone wires strung around the ground provided them communication. Caches of food and supplies were easily moved around throughout the combat area. Low-hanging fog along the ridges and mountainsides concealed their positions while also providing them good observation of the Americans huddling in their water-filled foxholes down below. While the Japanese watched their enemy, their enemy could not see them through the mist above. Earl tossed countless assaults, each bloodily repelled. Sergeant Louis Adamy of G Company of the 32nd Infantry described one of the failed assaults. The attack pushed off early in the morning at about 6.30 and immediately the Japs opened up. The first casualties were being hit in the back by guns high on the mountain to our left. It was demoralizing because we couldn't spot them. They had machine guns all over the place and knee motors were systematically blasting holes in our advancing lines. At nightfall, Earl would thus be forced to regroup behind a defensive perimeter, digging foxholes in the cold snow. Further north, battleship Nevada was hammering the Japanese positions with her 14-inch guns as the Americans watched severed arms, legs, and entire Japanese corpses pop out of their trenches, flopping grotesquely down the steep slopes from each salvo. The salvos were chewing great chunks of the mountain and inflicting heavy casualties upon the Japanese. The northern force, meanwhile, had reached high ground when the Japanese artillery had opened up on them, pounding Beach Red. By 10 p.m., the Americans were two miles inland and less than a mile from their first objective, designated Hill X. Hill X was the hilltop dominating Holtz Valley. The Americans would have to stop for the night, 
and they could not see where they were going. Unfortunately, this gave the Japanese ample time to build up defensive positions on Hill X. At 4 a.m., Willoughby got his half-frozen men off their feet and they marched over the final ridges of Atu's western mountains and emerged to the rear of the Japanese positions on the high ground overlooking Holtz Bay and the northern force. The scouts quickly took up a position, sliding on their backs down the long snow slopes. The Japanese, however, saw them and launched a preemptive attack. Willoughby's men exhibited professionalism. They took cover and demolished the attack with machine gun and motors. The scout's doctor, Captain David Kellen, went to work setting up aid stations with extreme speed that would save the lives of 15 badly wounded men on the 12th and 13th. On the 13th, the Americans pushed within two miles of German Pass, fighting every step that they took. Willoughby and his elite scouts fought so ferociously, the Japanese defenders estimated their strength to be a full division worth instead of just 410 men. On the 14th, a trio of F-4F Wildcats tried to support them, courageously fighting the very bad weather to get there, but incredible wind gusts smashed them against the mountainside, killing all of the pilots. Willoughby's men carried on their costly struggle that was necessary to stop the enemy from turning their full might down upon the northern force. At 9 a.m., as the fog lifted, Colonel Earl ordered his 3rd Battalion to assault Jarmaine Pass, and yet again it failed. His men only made it a few yards before they were crawling back under heavy fire. Earl himself was visiting the front lines early that afternoon and he was the victim of sniper fire. His death was a grave loss, prompting General Brown to send his chief of staff, Colonel Wayne Zimmerman, to take command of the Southern Force. At the same time, Colonel Cullen's men were attacking the right flank of the Japanese defenders at Jarmaine Pass, being met with machine gun fire, rifle fire and motors. Pinned down, one of Kulin's companies would be unable to move forward or back and had to be rescued. After beach artillery, Phelps naval guns and Nassau's wildcats made a bombardment. The northern force was able to push forward and link up with the isolated company. By the late afternoon, Hill X was captured by Kulin's men, who had overrun the Japanese positions to do so. The Japanese soon regrouped and counterattacked, causing heavy casualties, but did not manage to dislodge the Americans. At this point, casualties were shockingly high. General Brown pressed Rockwell to land two reserve battalions, but unbeknownst to him, the Parada had suffered an accident. As she was edging towards Massacre Beach to land her reinforcements and supplies, the transport ran into a pinnacle rock. Water gushed into her forward hull, destroying all the radio equipment needed ashore. Parada backed off, listing and staggered until she beached at the mouth of the bay, and was now undergoing repairs. Rockwell only had four more vessels for shipping. On May the 13th, Zimmerman picked up where Earl had left off, tossing men at Jarmain Pass. The soldiers struggled uphill through snow and Japanese lead, managing to get within 200 yards of the summit before triple crossfire tossed them back. After this defeat, Brown pressed again for reinforcements, and he was told two battalions would arrive early in the afternoon. By mid-afternoon, the 1st Battalion of the 32nd Regiment successfully landed and immediately marched uphill to fill the front lines. The 3rd Battalion of the 32nd Regiment, however, were prevented by steady Japanese anti-aircraft guns from landing. Brown asked Rockwell to get the Nevada to fire upon the Halts Bay area. As Nevada steamed back and forth firing her 14-inch guns against the Japanese anti-aircraft positions in Halts Bay, Suddenly, an officer on the bridge alerted everyone an enemy submarine was in the area. Rockwell snapped back at him. 
Screw the torpedoes. Slow speed ahead. The submarine was the IGN submarine I-31, and she quickly lined herself up with a Nevada and fired a single torpedo, but the old battleship managed to dodge it narrowly, and her destroyer escorts Edwards and Farragut began firing upon the submarine, managing to trap her and sink her with naval gunfire. Nevada silenced the Japanese flak guns, giving the boys on the ground a fighting chance. Willoughby's scouts, who had not eaten for over two days, drove the Japanese from their high ground, securing the summit and settling in for the night. To the east of them, Cullen's 1st Battalion managed to drive the Japanese from a hilltop with the assistance of Nassau's Wildcats. Cullen called off for reinforcements as his men dug in. For in 36 hours, a full-scale assault towards the mountain pass and enemy camp in Holtz Bay was about to begin. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just now releasing my episode on the Hongutuan Incident, the assassination of Zhang Zoulin. Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And over there, this month's exclusive podcast is the second part in my series on General Ishiwara Kanji, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident, and the man who created the theory of the final war. Please check it out, it would mean a lot to me. The fighting for Atu was turning into pure carnage. The frigid weather combined with flying lead in all forms would take a horrifying toll on the poor souls who had the unfortunate job of dying in one of the most remote places in the world where few people ever venture. <laughs>